Hello and welcome to season two of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You with me, Liz Tucker, the podcast for both doctors and patients. This week's story is so extraordinary that the best-selling spy writer, John Le Carrier, used it as inspiration for one of his novels. And indeed, if it was a work of fiction, you'd dismiss it as too fantastic or improbable. To tell this remarkable tale, I'm talking to whistleblower Dr. Nancy Olivieri, who became concerned during a trial about the effectiveness of a drug that she was using to treat thalassemia, an inherited form of anemia. Nancy was threatened with legal action by the drug company Apotex, who were part funding the trial, and told it would be a breach of contract if she mentioned her concerns to patients. This would spark decades of legal action, vitriol and intrigue, during which time many careers, including Nancy's, would be destroyed. Investigations would be launched, private detectives hired, and an academic found guilty of sending anonymous letters who would finally be tracked down by his DNA. But before we get to Nancy's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast, it would be a huge help if you could leave a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you could share and recommend it to friends and family, that would also be much appreciated. You can also join the podcast mailing list and be the first to find out when a new pod is published by signing up at my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, where you can also find out more about the podcast. And you can get further details too in my Substack newsletter, liztucker.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. Due to the detailed level of research and work this podcast requires, I'm moving to a fortnightly schedule. At the moment, it's just me sourcing the stories, doing all the research and the production on the podcast. It's not feasible to produce a pod of this depth weekly. So if in the coming weeks you feel able to support the show, even if it's just a five or a month, that would be a great help. You can either sign up on patreon.com slash what your GP doesn't tell you or via PayPal on my website, what your GP doesn't tell you dot com. Now back to Nancy's interview. In 1996, Dr. Nancy Olivieri, a specialist in blood disorders at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children and Professor of Paediatrics and Medicine at the University of Toronto, was working on a trial of the drug defraprone to help in the treatment of thalassemia, an inherited form of anemia. But Nancy had no idea how, in just a few months, her life was going to completely change. Nothing would ever be quite the same again. And her story would even spark the interest of novelist John Le Carrier. Here's the interview with Nancy. So Nancy, thanks so much indeed for joining me today. Great to be here, Liz. Thanks. I think there can't be too many scientists, Nancy, who find their life story so remarkable <laughs> that it becomes a research basis for a novel by the best-selling spy novelist John Le Carrier. <laughs> Well, you know, I think um, we were lucky in that regard, in that chance favors the prepared mind. When Jean Le Carré came to see us in Toronto, he was under no illusions. I remember sitting there very well and saying, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You don't really need this. And he said, this is exactly what I need. Because what he just needed was how exactly it happens, right? How to make sure that the errant scientist who's trying to tell the truth is put down. What happens in the back rooms? I guess it doesn't hurt to have a senior scientist and the most prominent physician at the hospital writing hate mail and a publicly funded investigation through which he denied it. So, you know, that kind of crazy story... <laughs> I think that may have been one of the things that alerted John Le Carre to the unusual aspects of this story. Let's just put it that way. So, Nancy, you're saying that the world of clinical science may have more in common with espionage than we've thought. <laughs> oh, well, it's a contact sport for sure. So your story starts. You're doing early work on a potential new treatment for thalassemia, an inherited form of anemia. And the problem with these patients is that they need constant blood transfusions, which causes an iron overload, and so need to take medication to reduce this overload. And at the time, the only medication to do this involved using needles for 12 hours a night. And you wanted to find a simpler alternative. And you think a drug called defaprone has potential. 
That's right. To get the iron out, we used to have to infuse a drug, but of course, needles every night infused under the skin are very inconvenient. So we were looking for an orally active replacement. And this was profiled in the BMJ. And we got MRC, that was Medical Research Council of Canada approval to do to small money to do the study. And we got Research Ethics Board approval and we went to Health Canada and explained what we wanted to do. We worked on all this for five years without uh, needing a pharma partner. So you're running an open label trial, which means both patients and doctors are aware of the treatment they're receiving, and that's publicly funded. And then you decide you want to take your research to the next level. We applied for a randomized trial. We were told by the Canadian MRC that we needed a industry partner. And when we went to the Food and Drug Administration, they also told us we needed an industry partner. We didn't know any pharma companies. This is back in 1993. And so introduced to Barry Sherman, we signed a contract with Barry Sherman's company. What happened then was the open label trial continued under Medical Research Council of Canada support. The randomized trial was approved by the MRC because we now had an industry partner. So it was a half and half contribution between public money and Barry Sherman. Half the money to one trial and drug to the open label, the first trial. Then we published a successful paper in the New England Journal in early 95. But through the next year, both Dr. Brittenham, my U.S. colleague and I, became concerned about the what we would have called the long-term effectiveness of the drug and some problems with this safety a little later on. And we raised those concerns. We told the Research Ethics Board at the Hospital for Sick Children where the studies were originating that we had concerns about that. We no longer felt the drug was adequately effective in many patients. So in these trials, which are part-funded by Barry Sherman's pharmaceutical company, Apotex, you and your colleague, Dr. Gary Brittenham discovered that in some patients, defaprone is not removing iron effectively, which is a problem because a continuing iron overload can lead to a number of complications. Yes, the Research Ethics Board, uh, the head of it said, well, you have to change the information and consent forms to reflect your new concerns, which was entirely right. In fact, we did it, submitted those forms on May 20th, 1996, and in May 24th, 1996, a letter was slipped under my door from Barry Sherman that said, if you tell patients, parents, regulatory agencies, or the scientific community about any of these concerns, you will be served with all legal remedies and two voicemails. So it's about 72 hours after I complied with the Research Ethics Board directive to change the information forms that I received these threats. And um, litigation followed. So his grounds for threatening you are he's claiming that you're breaking the confidentiality clause of the contract. That's the basis of his claim. Yes. And, and my closest ethics colleagues tells me the following isn't important, but I'm going to say it anyway. The contract that we had signed referred to the randomized trial, which was very early days. The contract we did not have a confidentiality clause on was the one in which the trial results actually arose. So it was misinterpreted both by Sherman's lawyers and by subsequent hospital lawyers and university lawyers to think there was actually a legal basis. Now, the reason my ethics colleagues tell me that that doesn't matter is because, of course, if a contract offends public policy, it is arguably null and void. You can't say, well, I was supposed to keep the dangers of this drug secret, so I really have to honor my contract. So Barry Sherman initiates legal action, and you then take action against him. Lots of legal action, yeah, not just against him. The result of this is that the trials are terminated by Barry Sherman in 1996, but the Canadian MRC is also funding the work. So how do they respond? Yes, the trials were prematurely terminated in 1996. Now, one would think that the public funder would say, hey, wait a minute, We've supplied tax money to these trials to experiment on a drug that we thought had promised. You can't unilaterally terminate them. But the MRC said and did nothing. We appealed to them and they said and did nothing. But although the trials are stopped, you do continue to treat some patients with this drug, defaprone, and continue to collect data. Some people 
not most, but some people were continuing to do well on the drug. We went to the university to allow the drug to be given in something called compassionate use. So it was no trial was ongoing after that, the trials had ended. So they assume we will not collect the data, but that's ridiculous. We, we did liver biopsies and that was a standard of care in Toronto. So whether or not the person was on a new drug or an old drug, they all got liver biopsies. Can you explain, Nancy, why liver biopsies are important? Sure, because the liver iron is equivalent to body iron burden. It's the only measurement in the human in which one can quantitatively determine the level of body iron. A lot of people and other centers did blood tests, which is a surrogate marker. It's called serum ferritin. Kind of estimates with the two to 20 fold range in error what your iron level is. But Gary and I at the beginning had said to ourselves, we're going to do liver biopsies because only through the use of liver biopsies that one can quantitatively determine the level of body iron. It's not rocket science, but you know we have been doing that for years in patients on standard drugs. It's just good management. It's because the frequent blood transfusions raise the iron in the body and these drugs right. to be effective have to be able to remove the iron. Yes. And they have to be able to remove the iron adequately. I mean, what we really need to see is a reduction to thresholds which guarantee the safety and lack of complications. Almost immediately, the ramifications from Barry Sherman shutting down your trials start to have a devastating impact on your career. First of all, I am dismissed from my responsibility, scientific co-chair of the or of the European trial, which I launched. Gary is asked to remain on, Gary Brittenham. He says, no, I'm not going to remain on. So he resigns. Others are placed to supervise other studies, not the ones in Toronto, which are terminated. But as you and your colleague, Dr. Gary Brittenham, continue post-trial studying defaprone in patients, you begin to have additional concerns that the drug may cause liver damage. In the latter part of 1996, Gary and I became concerned that the drug would accelerate, accelerate hepatic fibrosis. And can you explain what that is? Yeah, sure. Hepatic fibrosis is a process of damage to the liver, hepatic meaning liver, so liver fibrosis, in which we were concerned that deferiprone accelerated that process in iron-loaded patients. Now, enough iron over many years can accelerate hepatic liver fibrosis. And we then undertook a review headed by four international pathologists who examined the liver biopsy slides of all the years we had been exposing patients to deferiprone and concluded that this was a concern. And so those concerns were published in 1998 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Then an Italian pathologist responds to this and publishes a letter in the New England Journal of Medicine disagreeing with your findings. So you ask him for the data to support these claims. We asked for the data, never given it. And then the press gets involved. So they would come to me and say, so-and-so says there's no fibrosis. And I would say, okay, why don't you ask so-and-so if he did a liver biopsy in any of the patients? So they obediently trot back and they come back and say, he didn't, he, he didn't do liver biopsies. I said, I know. And that's how you don't see fibrosis in any patients. If you don't test for something, you don't see it. Yes. That was a fairly typical exchange. You know, did it matter? Yes, it did, because, you know, the, the, the court of public opinion uh, really promoted was that we were probably scientists, as my European lawyer <laughs> barrister put it, of breathtaking incompetence. Then you discover in another aspect of this story that feels like one of John le Carrier's novels, that this idea of your incompetence is also being given to the drug regulators. When at a conference in Australia, you're anonymously handed a package with Barry Sherman's application for the approval of defaprone. I was handed a brown paper envelope by somebody who rapidly fled. And in that envelope was Sherman's application to the regulator. And that was alleging that I had falsified and couldn't interpret my own data. So I think I was left with no choice but to challenge that licensing. And I did. That was one of the first uh, initiatives I took against Barry Sherman, which was a challenge to his attempt to obtain approval for deferi-prone, not six months after he stopped the trials in Toronto. So this starts a court case. Once you got the court documents or the pleadings, what did you find out? So once we got the pleadings, what we found in the pleadings was central to the whole thing, which was, you know, well, yes, we have these data. And unfortunately for Sherman, they were the only data he had. 
aside from a short-term Italian trial that had not examined liver biopsies, was just supposed to look at the frequency of adverse events. So he had data, but unfortunately they were Gary and my data. So he had to say, yeah, these data are here, but you know what? These data are, are wrongly interpreted by the principal investigators because they can't interpret their own data. So that was the basis of his pleadings to the European Union. But if, on the other hand, you've committed such severe protocol violations that the data becomes compromised, then surely the argument is, if you follow I know, I know. argument to the logical conclusion, then they need a new trial. Yeah. Well, actually, he alleged 3,160 protocol violations had taken part in this trial. So I retained an expert in regulation, law and medicine named uh, Graham Dukes, Professor Dukes from Norway. And he spent months on the trial auditing it. His um, conclusions were pretty, pretty bombshell, which is, I find no support whatsoever for these allegations. Any problems with the trial were absolutely minor. So after that, the European regulator changed its pleading, stopped accusing us of being pathologically uh, incompetent, but they still licensed deferiprone as a second line. Second meaning that patients would need to have failed or be allergic or in, unable or uh, unable to take desferioxamine, the standard needles, before they could be prescribed deferiprone. But then the European court decided that as you're not a party of interest, or in their words, don't have standing, you can't take action in this case. Frankly, we thought this was proceeding on its merits. And in 2003, December, the court returned a verdict that said, well, essentially the merits may be very robust, but we're throwing you out on standing in that you are not a European, you're not a patient. The puzzling thing is why it took them so long to come to that decision. They knew you weren't a European. I know. Right at the start. I know. Yeah, I didn't change my status. I know. My solicitor's long rant on this is actually laugh out loud funny, really. So at the same time, there are a couple of inquiries, one commissioned by the hospital, and then there's another independent one by the Canadian Association of University Teachers, the CAUT, to find out what's been going on. That's right. So the first investigation was in the fall of 1998, commissioned by the hospital. And I'll just say that as a result of that, things got much worse because rather than finding fault with anything that the university or hospital administrations had done, all the blame was leveled on me. And I was sent to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is your GMC, to remove my medical license. On what basis were they doing that? What had you done wrong? They said, well, I'm glad we, we went through this uh, other discussion of liver biopsies before, because the claim was that I was doing illicit liver biopsies. And as I tried to make clear about 17,000 times, we have been doing liver biopsies since 1989, was about, which was 10 years, <laughs> 10 years on people who were on standard therapy, on people who were not on trials, on children as young as five. We were doing liver biopsies because we wanted to treat the patients accurately. So basically, if you want to measure iron levels effectively, you have to do liver biopsies. Correct. You don't have to do those anymore because there's a non-invasive way. But at the time, this was the only way to accurately measure. So they claimed I had been doing this illicitly. And fortunately, um, even though it took a year and a half, nearly two years for the college to rule on this, the college wrote back and said, no, 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 that's not correct. They uh, said, no, we're not revoking your license because she's done nothing wrong. In fact, her actions have been commendable. But the reason, and I'm glad you brought this up, the, the hospital commissioned this, it was a very costly time for us, not only in terms of money, because we needed lawyers, but in terms of time and defenses and writing legal briefs and late into the night. And, and so this was, you know, a very good way to bully. They're extremely effective. But then the independent review from the Canadian Association of University Teachers, the CAUT, comes to a very different conclusion to the hospital report. The CAUT was already incensed and involved by the time this all happened, but they commissioned a three-party unpaid review over two years that was called the Oliveri Report. That was released in October 2001, clearly related. There was a, an unwillingness, at least, to support my academic freedom. And the CAUT report said, and I quote, the Hospital for Sick Children and the University of Toronto did not provide effective support either for Dr. Olivieri and her rights 
all for the principles of research and clinical ethics and of academic freedom during the first two and a half years of this controversy. After the controversy became public in 1998, the university stated publicly that it had provided effective support for Dr. Livieri's academic freedom, but this was not true. Yes. And the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons decision was released shortly afterwards. The college decision not to revoke my license was released a week or two later. So it was very tough for the powers that be to say, oh, well, the CAUT found wrongly. What about that college review? So that was a little bit of a triumphant time. And by that time, the hate mail and the threats had started to come to the surface and people were wondering what the hell was going on. What's it like as an academic researcher to have this vitriol poured on you from all sides, really? Well, it's terrible. I think people have run through this and have had worse experiences than me for one reason, one reason alone. I wasn't alone. I had these four colleagues. I had one read, one member of the Canadian ethics community, Arthur Schaefer, write and come to press conferences and talk about what a big deal this was. Every other one, was completely silent. It's very difficult to attack on five fronts, even if you're a powerful administration, to tell everybody that all very is crazy is a message that is diluted if you're saying Peter Dury is crazy and John Dick is crazy and Peter Brenda Galley doesn't know what she's talking about. And my colleague's solidarity with me was probably what made all the difference when I listen and listen still to people who are alone in these kinds of situations so it was it was tough. I mean, even talking about it now, it revives some of those memories. But the depressing thing is it always seems to be the whistleblower who pays. Yes, that's true. The, the, my favorite book, which is the most depressing account that you'll ever read in your life, is called Broken Lives and Organizational Power by C. Fred Alford. He really nailed it. He really nails whistleblowing. They lose everything and they lose their place in their profession, which is which is very costly to people because a lot of us conceive of that place as important in our lives, as important to what we do, who we are. And you have to have a strong sense of what you're doing is right. That's really helped by the presence of others and the support of others. And many people don't get that. And on top of this, you've got an incredibly complex legal situation. How the hell do you pay for it apart from anything else? You know, we didn't have a fund. I had very old friends from Hamilton, Ontario, where I grew up, who would have these fundraisers. And let me tell you, we didn't raise very much money. So, I mean, a lot of legal forgiveness, a lot of payment after we settled. Almost immediately, the Canadian Medical Protective Association, it's an insurance company for doctors. So everyone pays into this every year. When Barry Sherman issued that letter and the series of voicemails, I called the CMPA. And to the utter surprise of history, because I don't think this ever happened again, they said, okay, well, why should we defend you? And I said, because if you don't let me tell the patients, there will be harm to people who continue on a drug that allows their liver iron concentration to ascend. And if you don't allow me to disclose, and they said, okay, 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 we get it. And I had a lawyer free for a year. And we had good lawyers who said, pay me when you can. And we had bad lawyers who said, we want it all up front. They were rapidly gone. It was not just a matter of defense, because if if the university was going to say something, or some journalists, many of them, go to, went into full frontal attack, we sued. You know, we, we issued a libel suit. There was no way we were going to sit back and, and be trampled upon. Initially, in addition to Dr. Gary Brittenham, one of your other colleagues is a professor of paediatrics, Dr. Kidian Gorin, who initially agrees with your early findings and plays a key role in this story. But early on, it becomes clear that his perspective has changed. Gideon Corn becomes the person upon whom many people can rely to say that doctors Brittenham and Oliveri are incorrect in their interpretation. He's probably the most prominent physician at SickKids. And one of the consequences of this legal action hanging over you means you're constrained about what you can say. So as a result, you decide not to present an abstract about your defoprone findings at a conference in Malta. But then you discover that your colleague, Dr. Gideon Corrin, yeah, yeah. along with the Apotex employee, is going to present two papers at the conference using your data. What are those papers going to say? Yeah, well, they say the drug was adequately effective long-term and that it was safe, omitting some (laughs) slight problems that had been identified long before. When you find out that these papers are being presented, 
you change what you're going to do despite threat of legal action. Well, I said, you know, if I'm going to be prevented from talking and you guys are going to talk, who, who are you kidding me? So we resubmitted the abstract. Also, we contacted the conference head. Now, this is going back 25 years. And he was, he was supportive. He said, okay, I didn't know this either. Now that you tell me, we'll put your abstracts back on the program. And this led to another paper about nephroprone by Dr. Corin et al. in Therapeutic Drug Monitoring. But the data in this study only includes figures up to 1995, so a year before the trial ended. And it was only then that you started pulling patients from the trial and transferring them to standard treatment because of the iron overload problem. Which led to a complex proceeding of research misconduct, and he was held guilty. It was used in the attempts at licensing, to my knowledge, both at, in the European court, and I'm, I don't know this for sure, but possibly in other licensing applications, despite the fact we were reassured that because it was found guilty of research misconduct, this paper would be retracted. Then in 2018, which is kind of getting ahead of the story, but Corin's status had changed by then, and there was some impetus to examine issues long before, the paper was withdrawn. It took 17 years, but it was finally retracted. But the whole key point is, from 95 onwards, you identified this potential issue of fibrosis. So reporting the trial without that data is completely meaningless. Well, it, that's, that was part of the reason that the finding of research misconduct was held. Not the only reason, but yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's done all the time, Liz. You know, people cut off the data at six months when 12 months were troublesome. Or, you know, um, it's simply buried. But eventually, for many reasons, uh, the finding of research misconduct, for some of the reasons you're outlining, prevailed. But I guess the point is, did it have any outcome? Absolutely not. The paper remained in the literature for 17 years until circumstances changed that made more people decide, oh, maybe we can take action. Yeah, we should also say the paper didn't mention who'd funded the research, nor your contribution. So what you're saying is that paper was used in licensing application. So as a result, are you saying that the drug in some countries was licensed because of this paper? I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm saying that in the European licensing, it was still in 99. It was used as some of the literature. I don't know what decisions were made to license the drug as a second-line drug, either in Europe or 10 years later in 2009 at the FDA. I have no idea. What I am saying, it stayed in the literature and was therefore respectably able to be cited. It's not a retracted paper under which ostensibly there's any cloud at all. And I'm saying that fundamentally, whether or not it had tangible damage, it was a violation of all the research ethics for all the reasons we've said. In addition to this, an email goes out from the Hospital of Sick Children to all medical and scientific staff repeating an allegation about protocol violations during the course of the study. Yes, I remember exactly what that email looked like. All this for, you know, the challenge of saying, Gary, I think these liver irons are too high. So do I, Nancy. Maybe we should tell the REB. That was exactly what happened in the early 96. Do you see what could have happened? They, they could have said, well, why do you think they're high? We had a number of hypotheses as to why the drug wasn't adequately working, which is why we decided to continue until the toxicity was identified. We didn't think, oh my God, poisonous drug here. We had a number of hypotheses, all of which they rejected. And so, yeah, I, I remember that email very well. You know, it's just a classic abuse of, of power. And those are the kinds of things that were emotionally and professionally much more costly than lawsuits. Like I was never scared in court. First of all, I had the most competent lawyers alive. And secondly, you know, it's, it's the, it's the stuff hiding behind the trees in law, you know, everything's out there in the pleadings. Because actually in any of these drug cases, the only time all the data comes out is in a legal case because you have full disclosure. Yeah. And you know, Liz, people who say to me, I don't want to get into the, the swamp of lawyers. I say, you know what happens to people who don't use lawyers? They're losers. See how that works? That's exactly if you don't hire lawyers and are ready to spend was probably a million dollars. If you aren't willing to do that, you're not going to even slightly triumph. I'm not even saying like, really, we had a few victories, but you know, overwhelmingly, this is a story that's continued to go on with very few victories. Did you ever just think of giving up and quitting, Nancy, just thinking the cost is too high? I mean, emotionally and financially. Well, yes, I did many times. I had this gang 
for. And, you know, if one of us got really sad and down, the other would be right there. And, you know, I had some really, you know, I had mentors, you know, I had my, my mentor in Boston, David Nathan, I had my mentor in Oxford, David Weatherall. These were people who, you know, they were really quite central to the whole story. Uh, you can go on with just one or two people supporting you. Um, and the money didn't seem to really, it didn't matter. It still doesn't matter. I mean, you're right. The emotional toll is is the greatest. And then I was still hoping for, I guess, approval within the hematology community or support within the hematology community, very little of which we got. Then another layer of the story, a series of anonymous letters begin. <laughs> including various ones, you know, you can see why John the Carrier was interested, including <laughs> ones sent to a local paper. You and your colleagues who are supportive are briefed against. One of your colleagues is advised to run as fast as you can. Yeah. One of my colleagues who was British was called the British version of a hot air balloon. Balloon because balloon was spelled wrong. We called him balloon for years, joking. Uh, yeah. So arguably a bit of a, you know, slur on his his origins. So you and your colleagues decide that you need to hire a private investigator. What happens? Well, let me tell you, reason that happened is because my colleagues ignored me. I think we have to talk about academic freedom. And they were like, no, we have to find out who wrote this hate mail. And I, I wrongly thought it was not as material as it was. My colleagues are smart and resourceful. They hired an investigator. They got a number of clues. And in the end, there were very interesting clues. One of them obtained DNA from a stamp that the perpetrator was known to have licked. They sent it to a lab in California, and of course, it matched one in six billion chances that it would not be this person. All the time, I'm saying, I don't know why we're wasting time with DNA. So don't thank me for being this person who nailed it down. But when it was nailed down, well, that's when proverbial hit the fan because we had gone to the police and we had a very sympathetic sergeant at the local precinct and said, I've been reading everything about this for months. So he goes to the perpetrator's office and says, I've been hearing a lot of funny stories about you. The perpetrator says, oh, well, they're just nonsense, you know, these people. He says, but Dr. Corrin, they have DNA. And so it's hard to kind of defend a senior professor of pediatrics. The perpetrator, Dr. Corrin, when he's written anonymous letters, not only that, but has denied it in a publicly funded hospital investigation over eight months. I mean, every time I tell this story, and I said, and then I have to credit my colleagues with obtaining DNA, a laugh goes around the room. Like, can you believe this? One crazy hospital. I mean, did you just think, how the hell have we got here that we're now kind <laughs> of taking DNA samples from colleagues? Well, yeah, I did. But as I said, you know, I'm the person who thought, you know, all the reasoning behind academic freedom and the protection of scientific integrity was going to hit people. No, once you dethrone somebody, a chain of reaction gets in place that is much more effective than you standing up and talking about scientific integrity. Because frankly, nobody cared that much about what I was saying. But this was this was an explosion. Meanwhile, the legal battles are continuing. Do you think Barry Sherman saw it as something personal between you and him to the extent that he goes on the US 60 Minute program and says, and I quote, at no time was she told by anyone not to say whatever she thought was appropriate to a patient. Yeah, that's why it's useful to tape record. For all those whistleblowers out there, tape record everything. Because we did have a tape recording. And I remember 60 Minutes calling me and saying, do you have the tape recording? And of course it says, don't tell the patients or you'll be served with all legal remedies. It kind of contradicts what he said on the program. That's right. So this all goes on. Finally, things are sort of resolved in 2004. And you must have thought, that's the end of it. Well... <laughs> only for a few minutes. In 2004, we reached a mediated settlement with Barry Sherman. But litigation went on for another 10 years to a mediated settlement in 2014. So at this point, the mid-2000s, what data do we have on defaprone apart from the material from your trials? Yes, that's very important. So there was a large effort to convince the scientific community that deferiprone had a role in treatment. And it's probably too complicated to discuss on this program, but the main thrust of that was that deferiprone had a cardioprotective effect, um, which was quite distinct from its ability or non-ability if you were to reduce total body iron burden. Now, this was a scientific contention by many with which with I happen to disagree, 
but uh, that was uh, purported to be the value. And in 2009, there was an application to the FDA purporting this as well and relying upon a study that had uh, allegedly shown that cardiac iron was reduced more quickly with deferiprone than it was with standard therapy. However, the FDA ruled that that study did not show what it claimed to show. And contemporaneously with that, um, Barry Sherman submitted uh, the same allegations to the FDA in 2009 that he had submitted in 1999 to the European regulator. That was that I had falsified data and that I had or I was too incompetent to have conducted the trials robustly and that there were 3,160 protocol violations in my trials, notwithstanding the fact that Graham Dukes had released it, uh, an audit 10 years before that showed that that was not his finding. And what's the FDA's response to the application and the allegations of your incompetence? Well, in fact, the FDA did not accept, as the European regulator had accepted, at least um, tacitly, they then asked for an inspection. Now, you know that FDA inspections are very rare and foreign inspections, which Canada is to the FDA, are even rarer and probably rarest of all is an inspection of a trial that had been abruptly terminated 13 years before. But they said, can we inspect the clinical research forms? Probably the last trial that ever had CRFs that was in the possession of the actual investigator. Can you explain what the CRFs are for people that don't know? Sure, sure. A clinical research form is something that um, one fills out every month when the patient comes in. So a brief history, but also laboratory data of that date. And then if it's not of that date, another CRF is filed the week later so that there's a record of the blood test, of the liver biopsy that was done nearer on that date, um, of any um, uh, values of white cell counts, of uh, anything relevant to the investigation of the trial, the endpoints of the trial. And they're recorded in triplicate, pink, yellow, and white. And they're stored. One copy is given to the uh, sponsor, which was Sherman. Uh, one copy is retained in the hospital chart, and one is retained in the research chart. And the research charts, they were all color-coded in my office, which had never been touched since '96. So the FDA decides to audit this, and they send up... Uh, an investigator from the Department of Scientific Investigation from the FDA. And um, the investigator then says, well, let's open the first chart. So we go through the first chart and she says liver iron was two. And I say, no, it wasn't. No, on this date, it was 23. She looks at me. And uh, next one is um, liver iron's three. I said, no, it was 16. No, but I have three. I said, well, no, here, it's 16. She looks at me. She looks at me goes on like this. Anyway, the point is, Sid Wolf of the Public Citizens Health Research Group later wrote in a letter to the FDA commissioner that says, when the inspection was conducted, it concluded that the data presented by Dr. Oliveri were reliable. And it goes on from there. And as a consequence of this investigation, the inspector from the Department of Scientific Investigation of the FDA went back to the Washington and they shut down the advisory committee for two years. And important to your point, they said to Barry Sherman, we want another trial. You abruptly terminated the trial in 96, so you need to conduct another trial. And this is when the inspiration of the story from the FDA point of view kind of falls down because Sherman says, no, I'm not going to do that trial. And the FDA says, oh, okay, then you can do something else. And he submits a compilation of data from 12 different trials of different endpoints but based, Liz, on the serum ferritin concentration of those trials. There were no liver biopsies reported from those trials. Did they mention the fact that there was this discrepancy in the values you were reporting and the values that the investigator was looking at in some of the charts? Yes, they did. And on the public record is Sid Wolf and Michael Karomi from Public Citizens Health Research Group. That's very much on the record. And they outlined this whole process of what happened. And um, in that, they urged Janet Wilcock, the former FDA commissioner, not to go ahead and license to ferriprone because they are concerned about these findings and about the findings the FDA themselves, themselves identified, which was the discrepancy, as you put it. And the surprising thing 
it's no surprise to people who know what an FDA approval really means is that, you know, they did finally approve the drug in 2011 as, as third line, because in the meantime, Liz, um, another orally active chelator had been tested in clinical trials and had been ruled in 2005 as non-inferior to the standard needles and had been licensed as first-line therapy. That drug is called X-Jade or Deferocerox. So then in 2009, you're working at the University Health Network, UHN, as a director of their hemoglobinopathy program. Then suddenly you're fired. After I was shoved out, the whole employment uh, geometry of the of the clinic changed and it was run by different physicians. And then you discover that this drug, Defepron, is actually being used again from 2009 onwards. So you file a freedom of information request to find out what's happening. Well, I do. The reason I discovered it is because my patients would come up to me and say, am I supposed to be on deferiprone? And I would say almost nothing to them because I was so confused. Uh, I'd say, well, what do you mean you're on deferiprone? Well, I mean, I've been switched on to deferiprone from another drug, from the standard agent. And so before I filed my FOI, we went to the UHN. Now, it's important to note that this drug is unlicensed. It's unlicensed both in the US and Canada at this time. And it is licensed as, um, as the Cochrane Report described it, last resort therapy in Europe. I went to the UHN administration and they commissioned this report that said everything was okay, that people could be given this unlicensed drug. You know, that was a hugely consequential report. It, it, it begun patients being prescribed deferiprone while it was unlicensed. An unlicensed drug can either be given in Canada as part of a drug trial or as part of a special access program. That's correct. You haven't been able to find, nor has anyone else, evidence of any registration of That's a correct. drug trial. And for the special access program, that should only be used when conventional therapies have failed. Yeah, the special access program actually goes farther than that. It talks about emergency use, limited in quantity and duration. And my experience, I've used it once before in 1992 to experiment with something that I wanted to do in three patients. Special access is very careful to say this is not a replacement for a clinical trial. You're right. I was mystified. Part of the mystery when these patients came up to me is that I tried to find out if there was a clinical trial. That was part of the FOI, freedom of information seeking. And nobody else, others have never been able to identify any evidence of a clinical trial. Eventually, it turns out to be three quarters of the locally transfused people were switched from licensed therapy to deferiprone during these years. Not a few, not three, not five, not 10, not 15, but 71, as it turns out. And under the emergency access program, patients can only be given defeprone if standard therapy has failed. They can't be given the drug as the first line of treatment. It's alleged, presumably to Health Canada, that they had a problem with standard therapy. My very, I would say, careful review of the charts, turning every page and reading every note, could identify no evidence that patients were not doing well on one of the two standard drugs. So if there was an issue with the first line treatment, you didn't find the evidence for it. That's right. That's a perfect way to put it. If there were evidence there, I couldn't find it. And of course, I, you know, there's always an insecurity in doing this alone. So my colleague, Brenda Galley, is an informatic specialist and has gone through charts her whole life, did the same thing, pretty high level statistical analysis of this. And in the end, I mean, we just couldn't find the indications. So having gone through the records of the patients on Defeprone, you then published a paper about your findings in 2019. I had permission to look back retrospectively on charts of patients at UHN. And of this 100 or so patients that I look back on, 41 were on deferiprone and about 52 or so were on deferocerox, the standard licensed drug widely used around the world. So um, I published those data in PLOS 1 in 2019. Now, the problem was what we did identify in the PLOS 1 paper was that all was not well. The standard therapy deferocerox was associated with absolutely optimal levels of liver iron concentration. And yet quite a different set of results were obtained in the patients who were exposed to unlicensed deferiprone during that time. This is all in the public record. 
And there were some other concerns of complications of iron overload that occurred in the deferi-prone exposed group. Your paper reported that in 50% of these patients, body iron exceeded the threshold for fatal complications. That's it, yep. And that during the exposure to the drug, diabetes was diagnosed in 17% of patients and liver dysfunction in 65%. And one patient died after 13 months. Of course, we can't know whether that patient might have died anyway, and whether their death is related to the drug or not. Can never say, can never say. You know, but you can say one thing is that when I tried to present this to the UHN, they would talk about diabetes being a complication of iron overload. And Liz, that is undeniably true. That is, it was undeniably true in 1980. But to say that diabetes is a predictable complication erases 30 years of evidence of effective treatment of the reduction of body iron burden in the reduction of diabetes. So if you exceed over a certain point, for a period of time, which is undefined, could be months, could be years, your risk of diabetes, glucose intolerance, cardiac disease, and premature death is quite heightened. And so what we saw in our PLOS1 paper wasn't a you know, knock them down surprise. We saw people who had been maintained at elevated levels of body iron burden, some for years, who then developed the predictable complications. I, I find this... Um, well, I think it's problematic. However, during this time, the University Hospital Network doctors, the UHN, take a different view and send a letter to the FDA in 2011 saying they cannot emphasise adequately how much they support the licensing of Defaprone. Yes. Then six months after your papers published in 2019, a study authored by Binding et al. is published. You only had access to 41 of the patients in the group taking defaprone. Binding has access to 71 taking this drug. But allegedly, this is the same patient population. However, there's a big difference in the reported results in the two papers. He doesn't report the same level of adverse events at all. How do you explain that? The main question here is the discrepancy. And those two papers allegedly examine many of the same patients. So binding reports, none of the complications that Brenda and I reported, Gally and I reported, none of the elevations, the doubling of liver iron concentration, the mean doubling in the deferibone treated patients, the 65% elevated liver enzymes, the six new diabetics during the period of exposure, not any of the other probably less important, but still very important complications or adverse events that happened during that time, they're not reported at all in binding. So the puzzlement, the center of the question is, how can two papers published six months apart be so different? I think they reported under 10 or under 20 adverse events. So it worries me because these are totally disparate viewpoints of what I assume are the same data. But during this time, in the medical literature and community, there are some people critical of you who say your actions are stopping defaprone from reaching people because it's an effective drug that could have been used more widely. Always. 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 And of course, it's a very effective argument. Making available a drug that, in my opinion, I worry about its adequacy in terms of its effectiveness, um, dates back to my understanding of the science, which is this. Reducing your liver iron from, say, 20 to 18 is, of course, defined as a reduction. And many people will say, look, the liver iron came down. The problem is, is that it's not a neutral finding because if you do not reduce below a certain point, then what happens as night follows day is you get iron-related complications. There was a substantial proportion, 39% of our patients, that actually had good control. So this was consistent, not to run the drug down. Drugs don't work in everybody. Drugs don't work equally well in everyone. However, because of the nature of iron overload, the irreversibility of complications of iron overload, and the silence of the complications. It's not like if I get a liver iron over 15, I'm suddenly going to feel terrible. It's a silent killer. So you need to be proactive and careful and quantitative when you're treating these patients. So yeah, we were accused of preventing large populations from receiving the drug. I used to say, and they never would print this, 
I didn't stop the trial. I had a number of hypotheses, some are still unproven, that suggested that there may be a reason for some people not doing as well. And I proposed those. And all we wanted to do was inform the people who were already on it that we were in doubt about some of this. And if I'd been a recipient of deferred on those trials, as every one of my patients was like, God, I'm glad you told me. And some of them said, we're still going to stay on it, but can you measure it more often? And we'd say, yeah, we can try to do that. Are you saying, Nancy, there might still be a role for Difapron in a group of patients? There might be a subset who might still benefit? Well, I wouldn't know if I would go that far because I don't think that research will be conducted. Anything that hasn't been investigated is possible, I guess. As I've already alluded, people don't do liver biopsies anymore. They use non-invasive methods that are quantitatively equivalent to biopsy called MRI, forms of MRI, where you can measure the liver by MRI and you can get a liver iron measurement that's quite close to what you would obtain at biopsy, but you're not looking at the tissue. So how would you be able to tell what's happening? So, you know, I I don't know. And I guess the simple answer to that, Liz, is that in the meantime, we've got a quite effective orally active drug, you know, have no skin in the game to any pharma company, but uh, quite experienced with the use of Deferocerox in Sri Lanka now. So the main thrust at the time we began these studies 30 years ago was more than 30 years ago, we really wanted an orally active agent because needles infused into the skin 12 hours a night are difficult for kids, for teenagers, for everyone. And of course. But now it's a bit of a different construct and there, 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 is, a, there is a very effective drug available. So in your personal experience as a doctor, are there any circumstances in which you would now use Defeprone? No. In 2015, the drug is licensed in Canada. It is. It is. What data is being used for that licensing? Well, now you've asked the $64,000 question. So I have a very close colleague who's kind of a hero of drug policy, a a remarkably quantitative, even guy, uh, who I won't quote because I don't have permission. And I asked the question, which you just asked, which is X, on what data was it licensed? We plod through what people claim is a pretty easy website to plod through Health Canada, although I find it impenetrable. And he says... Let me be clear, Nancy, before 2009, there are two adverse events reported during deferry-prone exposure. Between 2009 and 2015, 15 reported adverse events. And you find that very hard to reconcile with your research paper published in 2019, which suggests a much higher level of adverse events. Yeah. And I say, X, that is impossible. I know this and I confidently say it. Adverse events, they must be here somewhere. And he said, Nancy, I know what your paper said, but they're not here. So what I am saying to you, Liz, is that Health Canada approved the data, whatever the data were, and licensed the drug, but were not informed of the data I later published, identifying between 2009 and 2015, only a fraction, a very small fraction, of those adverse events were reported to Health Canada prior to Health Canada approving the drug for sale. And what about the data from your trial, which stopped at 96? I don't think it was relied upon. What I know that Health Canada said was the drug was licensed primarily on the basis of a Canadian data package. Have I asked for that package? About 55 times. I've never been shown the Canadian data package, but my hypothesis is that it was probably more recent data and not my data from the trials that were prematurely terminated. And Nancy, you sent a number of letters to the University Hospital Network, the UHN, and not had a response. I and others have sent letters, you know, I mean, trying to clarify both the, the how of wow, how... The, the basis of how the drug was given. The fact is that we were in the dark, pretty opaque still. As to what happened, there's nobody who can identify a clinical trial having been done. So inherent in that is, was there informed consent? You know, the first thing Gary and I did back in 96 was, oh, my God, we have to change the informed consent forms because people have to to affirm that they're ready to go ahead with this new level of uncertainty. And the REB, the Research Ethics Board at SickKids, were the people who said, well, you got to change them. I mean, it was absolutely in line with everything we understand about informed consent and disclosure to patients, which is the center of clinical research, right? You need to have informed consent to proceed with anything. And I don't know 
what informed or other kind of consent was provided to these patients. And over the years, since the trials were terminated in 1996, you said that you were frustrated by the fact that so many people in the scientific community and beyond remained what they called neutral in this story. Once, a long time later, I was asked to give a talk by um, a, a medical colleague of mine, and a lot of ethicists were there. And of course, they came up with the usual, there are two sides to every story. You know, like Gloria Steinem, what was the other side of the civil rights movement? The guard dogs? Anyway, I said, really? So I'm sitting in clinic with a person, and she's got a seven-year-old on the trial. And I think that the liver iron's too high. So the other side of it is I shouldn't tell her. Is that what you're saying? Because that's what the letter said. We were largely prevented from doing that without taking extreme risks, which we took. But, you know, unsupported by almost anyone in Toronto, with the exception of my colleagues. So I want to point out I had four very close colleagues at SickKids who were phenomenally devoted to academic freedom and the protection of patients, but, you know, one in a hundred. There was a great deal of effort to counter individuals who are raising questions. We see this today. So Nancy, do you ever wonder how your career would have been different if none of this had kicked off, if the trial had just gone on smoothly? I do, Liz, but you know, one of the things is that what defines your life, really? What's your story about? And I guess my story would have been going along and kind of cooperating and maybe doing more pharma trials and then more and more pharma trials because I do miss the way things were. I miss what I used to do. But the thing is, is that it kind of is a world that doesn't exist anymore. And so, you know, when we were dreaming up all this, it was all independent. We wrote 100% alone, wrote the MRC grant, tossed it back and forth. We, we went to the Health Canada ourselves, traveled up, you know, on the train. We applied the research ethics board. There was no conduits at all. There was no CROs. There were no clinical research forms. We were just recorded in the day. But, but now that is gone. That's a, gone with the wind, that world. And so there's nobody who says, Carrie, let's do a trial of this. Oh, Nancy, I hate your endpoint. So I don't have something to miss anymore or to reflect on. Gee, I wish it was, I wish it was the old days because the old days don't exist. And also, I think, I guess I wouldn't have seen the difference in people. I mean, this is not a real professional lesson. It's much more of a personal lesson in that I met people who had to fight like crazy just to get their own truth out and never doubted that it was the truth and never doubted they were doing the right thing. Were they destroyed? Of course they were destroyed. I mean, you could argue my career was certainly destroyed, but your life isn't really just about how many papers you can publish and how many pharma grants you can get. And, you know, it's not the real thing, really. The real thing is, what are you doing it for? I think people don't understand how drug trials moved from largely being run by academics who fed back the information to the pharmaceutical industry to now them being run by contract research organisations working for the pharmaceutical industry. And now academics are sort of people for hire. I think that that is a very important point. I think they have this whole thing about you're doing research and really it's the companies design the trials largely. You know, obviously there are exceptions, but companies decide on an endpoint, carefully chosen. And then it's a successful trial in which a p value is reached, and you submit. And the FDA says, well, I guess this was your primary endpoint and you've achieved it. So, you know, the approval is given. These trials are not the same way they used to be. The CRFs, the clinical research forms I had, I knew exactly what everybody's birth date was, what everybody's liver iron was on September 4th, 1994. I knew what they were. That doesn't happen anymore. People probably in the old days did all kinds of things. I'm just saying that the doctors and researchers, people who started the trials then had control, I guess, or they had accountability. I think if you're right, which I think you are, people don't understand that, but things have changed. And so if a researcher now found themselves in your position, would they be in a worse position, do you think? I think they'd be in a more difficult position to say, no, that's not what my data show. My data show this. I mean, I, I can't imagine the FDA coming up and, and saying, show me the CRFs because I wouldn't have the CRFs, you know, with clinical research forms. I wouldn't have them. I'd have to say, well, I think the company has them. And they would say, well, 
okay, then there would never have been a moment where she looked at me and said, well, this isn't what that I have here. It's, it's a discrepancy here. I mean, I think it's blindingly obvious that it's a different world. Other people really do believe that there's a robust system of research checks and balances. I really think many don't understand how much things have changed. Yes. And the lack of access to data. Yes. And as a final postscript to your story, Dr. Gideon Corrin, the writer of the anonymous letters, who had a paper retracted for misconduct, finds himself in 2018 facing a new hospital investigation into a whole-scale review of his work. Four years on, the investigation has yet to report, and Dr. Corrin has given up his licence to practice medicine in Ontario, while Barry Sherman, who you had so many legal battles with, was found murdered with his wife in 2017. Yes, he was. So it's such a strange tale, Nancy. Thank you so much for talking. Really appreciate it. Okay, Liz, thanks. Thanks. Goodbye. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You. A reminder, you can sign up for the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, get further details on my Substack newsletter, and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. In the next episode, I'm talking to the paediatric endocrinologist, Dr. Robert Lustig, who claims that sugar is not just empty calories and that fructose is more accurately described as a poison. He reveals why he believes it and all ultra-processed food is causing an epidemic of chronic disease and metabolic illness. So do please join me then. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>